Hey everyone, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and of course, whoever. And so before we begin, I'll try to make this quick. I just watched a movie called Fat Man. One word, no space or hyphen. The premise being that a wealthy child hires a hitman portrayed by The Shield's Walton Goggins, if you're old enough to remember that series, to track down and kill Santa Claus, portrayed by Mel Gibson. So as you can imagine, it was kind of a strange and quirky movie. Gibson and Goggins's Goggins's performances definitely held my attention, but overall the movie kind of dragged. It felt like it may have even been around two hours long. Maybe it just felt that way, I don't know. But entertaining in its own way, uh, I'd probably give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. Not sure why I felt the need to share that with you, a little impromptu movie review. Uh, It was just such a weird movie and still fresh in my mind. But yeah, I still remember Goggins. I used to think his name was Walter Goggins, but it's Walton Goggins. But I remember him as Shane on The Shield. That was such an intense show. If you're too young to remember, or if you've never seen it, it was about a group of corrupt cops or detectives working in an anti-gang unit. One of those shows that really kept you on the edge of your seat and you never knew what was going to happen next. Uh, Michael Chiklis was great in that too. And it looks like I'm not done with this digression, so I might as well keep going for a bit. And like a lot of people, I loved Mel Gibson growing up. I loved him in the Mad Max movies and then in Braveheart. Great movie despite its historical inaccuracies. But then eventually he had those meltdowns. I think he was arrested for a DUI and was caught saying all sorts of ugly stuff, some of it anti-Semitic. I believe he accused the quote-unquote Jews of being responsible for all of the world's wars. And then about four years later, he was caught on tape berating his girlfriend at the time. Uh, I think he had a child with her. Uh, I believe she was a Russian singer slash songwriter. And at one point, he says that he hopes she gets, and I'm really cleaning it up here, but essentially hopes she gets sexually assaulted by a pack of N-words. So really ugly stuff. See, this is what happens when you go off script and start talking about an unplanned topic. So ever since then, it's been weird for me watching Mel Gibson. You don't want to just ignore the fact that someone said that kind of ugly stuff. But on the other hand, how long do you hold it against them? It's a whole thing. It's funny, in the movie, Mrs. Claus is played by a black actress. And I couldn't help but think of some of the stuff Gibson has said in the past uh, as he's hugging on her and kissing her. Maybe he's grown. Maybe some of that nasty, racist stuff he said was just spurted out in anger. Uh, Not necessarily a full or accurate reflection of his racial views. On the other hand, uh, you know, you could argue that perhaps what slips out of someone's mouth in a fit of anger could offer a kind of window into what they really think. Why am I psychoanalyzing Mel Gibson? On with the show. And I know it's probably frustrating and annoying when I say we're about to really start the show and then I say, oh, one more thing. Kind of like Columbo. One more thing. So, uh, also before we dig in, I wanted to quickly apologize if I accidentally blew out anyone's eardrums with the last episode. 
I was so disappointed with myself over the quality of that last unscripted episode, you know, the uh, you-know-what-I-mean episode, that I really tried to deliver a well-polished show for you guys last week, and I did my best to balance out the audio levels of all those different clips, but when I listened back to the show in my car for quality control, my voice sounded so much louder than some of the clips that when I came back in after the end of the Dawkins Cosmic Skeptic clip, I actually literally gave myself a jump scare. It's like I forgot I was listening to my own podcast and I suddenly startled myself with my own voice. But that seems to happen sometimes with GarageBand. I don't know why, but everything will sound good inside the project. But then something happens while processing or exporting the final file and the levels can sound off. I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. But anyway, finally, on to the stories I actually planned on covering. So I take it many of you have probably heard of this mysterious monolith that was discovered in a canyon in southeastern Utah. As cool as the story is, I'm kind of surprised by how much attention it garnered. This seems like the kind of story that might otherwise, you know, have been relegated to the quote-unquote weird news section of some online publication. But it's really captured people's imaginations. And I found myself wondering if it's because, like myself, when people hear about the discovery of some strange monolith, the first thing that comes to mind is the Kubrick film 2001 A Space Odyssey, which I believe was actually based on Arthur C. Clarke's short story The Sentinel. And I think Clarke actually wrote the screenplay along with Kubrick, something like that. But obviously, a mysterious monolith plays a big part in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Spoiler alert. Just kidding. The film came out in, what was it, 1968? I think the necessity for a spoiler warning is long expired. But, but there's that famous scene in the beginning where a group of primitive hominids encounter a mysterious monolith, and I think it's implied that their exposure to it somehow hastens or accelerates their evolution or technological advancement. And then, of course, the movie jumps to the future with humanity now in the age of space exploration, Hal and Dave in the mission to Jupiter, etc. And eventually Dave encounters other monoliths and has this very kind of transcendent cosmic experience near the end. And so I think 2001 is such a well-known film and has had such an influence on popular culture that when you hear monolith, you think of the film and or the role the monolith plays in it. To me, at least, it kind of represents the profound mystery of the cosmos, the unknown, extraterrestrial intelligence, etc., I think the word monolith also brings to mind things like Stonehenge and Standing Stones as well. So I guess it makes sense why people would be so intrigued by this mysterious monolith in a Utah canyon. And it's funny, from what I understand, this thing was first discovered in 2016, but officials kept it quiet because they didn't want people getting lost searching for it. Uh, I love this stuff, but at the end of the day, I'm a skeptic and don't think there's anything spooky going on. According to the reporting, apparently it's just constructed out of separate pieces of aluminum or stainless steel that have been riveted together. But there's been a couple of updates. Firstly, the Utah monolith recently vanished, just like in the movie. Joking. Most likely it was just stolen. Uh, that's what officials seem to be suggesting anyway. For some reason, I picture a group of guys like the lone gunman from the X-Files dragging it away under the cover of night for further analysis. 
And then the second update is, and it's December 3rd as I'm recording this, that apparently another monolith seemingly of similar construction has popped up in Romania. And uh, man, news moves fast, but I just checked and that one has disappeared too. Uh, my guess is the first one was probably kind of like an art installation. Someone probably thought it would be a cool idea to leave a monolith in this kind of open and remote natural setting, and I agree. I actually think it's pretty cool too. Uh, it gives people something to ponder and it sparks conversation. I can appreciate the mischief angle too. It must be fun or there must be kind of a naughty thrill leaving something like that somewhere, knowing that's probably going to blow some minds or get some people scratching their heads. And I imagine the Romanian one is just a copycat, unless the same dudes hopping around the globe erecting monoliths. Highly doubt it, but hey. Alright, yet another update. I'm still editing this, and apologies for not getting this out sooner, but it's now December 8th, and apparently another monolith has been found on the Isle of Wight, uh, one's been found in California, and I guess there's been several throughout Europe. Um, I still believe they're probably just man-made kind of copycats. It would be cool if they were real, though. Imagine monoliths of extraterrestrial origin mysteriously popping up around the world. I always feel weird saying this, but I shouldn't since I believe it's the scientific consensus. I do believe in aliens in the sense that I believe most likely that there's life elsewhere in the universe. Given the vastness of the ever-expanding universe and the fact that the basic ingredients of life are probably relatively common, it makes sense statistically that there's probably life out there. How much is out there, I don't know. I would imagine primitive or rudimentary life forms, like microscopic organisms uh, or things on par with maybe a sea sponge would probably be more common than highly advanced sentient life forms capable of building civilizations and space travel. And there's actually something called the Drake Equation. It's a probabilistic argument created or written by astronomer slash astrophysicist Frank Drake uh, back in 1961, I believe. It attempts to try to get a rough idea of how much extraterrestrial life, especially or specifically extraterrestrial civilizations capable of communication located in the Milky Way galaxy there may be out there. And I believe Drake, not that Drake, wasn't trying to suggest it would provide an actual number, but it hoped that rather it would just help to stimulate scientific dialogue or interest. And I can't remember if this is also part of the Drake equation, but I know scientists have also hypothesized about what kind of lifespan an advanced alien civilization would have before they would eventually or ultimately destroy themselves with their own technology, weapons of mass destruction, etc. So, even though I believe odds are there's got to be life out there, I'm skeptical we've been visited by an advanced alien species due to both the lack of compelling evidence and also due to the fact that, even if they were highly advanced, advanced enough for space travel, reaching us would probably be no easy task. I'm guessing you'd need something probably capable of traveling light years, not to mention enough fuel or energy to get you from point A to point B. Doesn't mean it's impossible. I suppose in theory, a civilization could become so advanced that if they didn't destroy themselves first, they might be able to achieve some super advanced mode of travel that we either haven't even thought of yet, or that's currently so far out of our reach it seems like just a sci-fi pipe dream. 
So yeah, once again to reiterate, probably not impossible, but I'm doubtful they've been here. And then of course, the History Channel has that series Ancient Aliens, and as fun and as colorful as some of those theories are, the ancient gods were really aliens and helped us build the pyramids, etc., I take issue with that kind of thing on a couple of counts. For one, as a skeptic, I just think the evidence is pretty shoddy or lacking. It's always something like, oh, this ancient bird sculpture kind of looks like an airplane. Or if you tilt your head this certain way, you know, this ancient Egyptian image of a snake emerging from a lotus flower looks like a giant light bulb. Or making giant leaps like the fanciful monsters from old myths like griffins and centaurs, etc., are really hybrid chimeras created by ancient alien geneticists, that kind of thing. And the people who embrace these theories, and I think this is true for a lot of people who embrace conspiracy theories in general, when it comes to the mainstream narrative, they're very skeptical, I'd say overly skeptical, but when it comes to these alternative beliefs or theories they choose to embrace, no matter how outlandish, think Flat Earth, they fully engage in a suspension of disbelief. And also, once again, as fun as this stuff is to think about, I think suggesting aliens are responsible for ancient architecture and building achievements like the pyramids is kind of a slap in the face to human ingenuity and the collective achievements of our species. You're downplaying the role of our predecessors, our species, and the creation of these amazing and impressive accomplishments, and giving the credit to fictitious beings. And I've thought of this before, but if aliens helped us build this stuff, shouldn't these monuments look a bit more futuristic or something? What did they do? Give us some pointers on cutting stone and fly the blocks around for us with ropes or tractor beams? It doesn't make a lot of sense when you really think about it. And surprise, surprise, these monuments are all built out of mundane materials. You'd expect ancient humans to have access to mud, brick, and stone. We found tools. In the case of the pyramids, we found bodies of workers, their spines bent from all the backbreaking labor. It's fun to imagine what if aliens did it, but come on. And I know I'm being pretty harsh with my criticism here, but I'm just trying to be realistic. And I'll admit, I like when ancient alien themes are used in sci-fi and fiction, like Prometheus and Covenant, or Raised by Wolves, which I recently reviewed on the show. I like the movie Stargate, and I also used to love watching the different Stargate series. I used to kind of have a thing for Amanda Tapping. But at the end of the day, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and all that, you know? But okay, on to the next story. Didn't plan on talking about aliens for that long. I thought talking about those monoliths would just be a fun little thing that would only take a couple of minutes. But uh, hey, oh well. So I guess next let's talk about Joe Rogan. And many of you are probably already aware that I'm a longtime Rogan fan. I was a big fan of the old sitcom news radio which he was on, playing a character when I think back on it that was a lot like himself. He played this kind of young, macho, but quirky Italian handyman, also named Joe, with a penchant for conspiracy theories. And I don't want to waste too much time talking about news radio, but what a great ensemble cast. You also had Phil Hartman, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall, Stephen Root, Andy Dick, just a crazy bunch of people to have together on one TV show. 
So yeah, uh, I've liked him since the news radio days, but it wasn't until I heard him on an episode of the Adam Carolla podcast that my appreciation of him really grew or deepened. I thought of him as just this comedian slash actor that I thought was pretty cool or funny, but I had no idea until that Carolla episode that he was really into things like psychedelics, exploring slash expanding consciousness, sensory deprivation, all that stuff. And so I started listening to his podcast. I've been a fan or a listener ever since. And on a side note, I don't think I've listened to Adam Carolla in years. I think the last time I saw him was in a clip a YouTuber I watched recently covered. I think it was Adam Carolla, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, and Dave Rubin on a stage together bitching about uh, the left and cancel culture. So same crap, different day. But I still like Rogan, and I think he still delivers some great shows, some great conversations when he has certain guests on. But there are some things that I've noticed about his approach that kind of irk me. It's like he has these two annoying modes he switches or oscillates between. On the one hand, and other people have raised or leveled this criticism as well, His political takes or opinions seem to change with the wind, as if to reflect those of whoever he happens to have on at the moment, as if on some semi-conscious level he really wants the person to like him or something. And then conversely, strangely, he'll sometimes go the other way and become overly combative or rude when it isn't necessary. Case in point, his recent interview with Whole Foods founder John Mackey. And it's funny, I don't think I've ever done this before with a Rogan episode, but I was personally so turned off by Mackey's kind of right-leaning, libertarian, pick-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps business or economic philosophy that I actually just turned off the YouTube video and found something else to watch. And I had known going in that this was Mackey's philosophy to some degree. I think he's notoriously anti-union, and he's been in the spotlight numerous times in the past for his kind of controversial or inflammatory views on business. And it's funny, and maybe some of you out there were under the same assumption, but I used to think Whole Foods, I figured the owner or founder must be some earthy, crunchy hippie with a compassionate business philosophy. But not really. Turns out he's a hardcore businessman with a Texas straw. And uh, he is a little earthy crunchy, and I'll get to that. And so I was so turned off by his business philosophy that I turned the episode off, or rather closed out the YouTube video. And then I noticed that a vegan YouTuber I sometimes watch named Hench Herbivore had published a response video to a part of the Rogan Mackey interview. And it's a part that must have taken place after the point where I stopped watching. And on a side note, before I started watching Hench Herbivore, I had no idea what the word hench even meant. Here in the States, we of course have the word or phrase henchman, which is basically like a big goon or enforcer who serves under a mob boss or whatever. But I had never heard the word hench outside of that context. I think in the British use, it just means strong or muscly or something. And obviously, um, you know, it must be where the term henchman comes from. Yeah, the name makes sense because Hench Herbivore is a vegan bodybuilder and the dude's jacked. And in fairness to Rogan, he did push back against Mackey's views on business. And in the wake of that interview, there were people on both the left and the right describing or characterizing him as having, you know, defended socialism. Uh, 
But yeah, it looks like after I turned it off, they eventually discuss veganism. And based on his discussion with Joe and what I've since read, it looks like John Mackey is indeed vegan. And so I was about to write this guy off as being nothing more than this cold-hearted businessman, and it turns out he's vegan. It goes to the show how complex people can sometimes be. So I think what I'll do is I'll take Hench Herbivore's short response video, isolate the parts from the Rogan interview and stitch them back together. Hench Herbivore mentions that the original Rogan video was supposedly deleted. In fairness to Rogan, once again, if it was deleted, I doubt it was because he was embarrassed or worried about how he came off. He pretty much leaves everything up. My guess is it probably has more to do with the fact that the terms of his $100 million deal with Spotify are finally kicking in. The show's going to be Spotify exclusive going forward, and I think they've already started making changes to the YouTube channel, like taking down certain videos and not uploading the full-length versions of recent episodes. But he does come off as kind of rude and impatient or passive-aggressive, or maybe just aggressive. Not always sure where the uh, prefix passive applies. And it kind of seems that uh, uh, that much worse when you factor in that the guy had just given him a bunch of free stuff right before Joe really starts leaning in on him, you know? But here's the clip. Thanks for the food. No one's ever brought me food here. I'm a grocer. That's what I do. <laughs> I know, but you, you brought me uh, actual frozen meat, so thank you very much. Frozen meat, some vegan cheese. Um, yeah, that will go to friends. It's um, really good. Does it's it taste good, or is it good for you? Both. It's just made strictly out of almonds. That's all that's there. Oh, in really? Yeah, taste it. It's a cream cheese with <clears throat> chives in it. It's delicious. I really just like almonds. Can I just have almonds? You can, but... <laughs> but You'll like the cheese. Give it okay. a try. I know you're an open-minded man. Yeah, so I am. I'll try, try. I'll try your vegan cheese. Uh, let, me, let me give you a couple of facts that, oh, please that, do. You, that you might find interesting. First of all, there's been only one diet that's been proven to reverse heart disease, and that is a whole foods plant-based diet. It's I been, don't think that's true. I know what you're saying, but I, I've actually read that that's not true either, that that's not what's reducing heart disease. What's reducing heart disease reverse is healthy behaviors and that you're making this change in terms of eliminating toxic foods do, do and processed any, foods and so do you have any other studies that show you can reverse heart disease without being on a whole foods plant-based diet yeah, reverse but, it reverse it see that's the thing it's like nutritionists have explained to me that there's a giant flaw in these epidemiology this is not epidemiology this is not epidemiology this okay, is how is this how is would control, you do that these are controlled studies a whole foods plant-based low fat diet has been proven to reverse it i don't know if that's true it I, is I, true I, mm, okay we're going to find out if it is when jamie will pull something <clears> up five blue zones their diets are remarkably similar they're basically eating about on average, according to Dan Butner, good guy to have on your show sometime. Well, like your Belinda, right? Your Belinda, California. Blimey, Linda. But good try, Jay. But you know that one's that's the Seventh Day Adventist, yeah, but right? There, but there's also the the Okinawa, Ikaria, Greece. Right. But you understand. You understand healthy user bias, right? And this is like the great example of the Seventh Day Adventist. They don't drink any alcohol. They exercise every day. There's, they have many more positive habits, and you apply and yet, those positive habits and the fact they eat a vegetarian diet, you could assume that the reason why they're healthy is because of the vegetarian diet. Yes, but we don't have any examples of longevity in any culture that eats a heavy meat diet. None. Me longevity. Like longevity. The Maasai? Li living, the Maasai, the average, you know the average age of a Maasai? 
No, I don't. 45. Well, don't they fuck up lions with spears? I put the challenge to you. Show me examples of long-lived peoples that are heavy consumers of animal foods. Well, I don't, I don't know are, of there any, any specific long-term studies that have been done on people who are eating a lot of animal food and are also very active and and healthy and making healthy choices outside of that. So what do you think is bad about animal foods other than the ethics? From a health standpoint, uh, the it depends on how much you eat. And if you eat too much of it, then we see the, the heart disease, we see cancer. These all correlate very closely with the Right, more, but the, now you're talking about epidemiology studies. I do this debate all the time, too. And so I, I understand your position on this. And all I would say is find the other epidemiologists. Where are the epidemiological studies to support your point of view? There aren't any. If you wanted an epidemiology study that supported the fact that animal foods are not bad for you. If you've got the whole world to work from, there are, lots of the world eats animal foods that are grass-fed, and the same type of results show up there. Generally, the more the animal same type of results in terms of what? The term heart disease and cancer and, and, and with people that occasionally, like, what, what, like what, are the, what are the studies you're talking about? I can, would you like me to send you some studies? No, I want you to tell me right now because you're saying it like you know it for a fact. What studies are showing that people that consume grass-fed meat and vegetables are showing the same levels of heart disease and cancer as people that eat the standard American diet? Since I don't have those studies in front of me. They don't, they don't exist. Well, <clears throat> Parsing out the st standard American diet, I think I we can both agree, is I can, toxic. I can send right? them to you. It's toxic. Be eating horse shit and drinking soda, it's not good for your no, body. No, it's terrible. Right. Well, that's where we agree. We agree yeah. processed foods are bad. So when you're getting this standard American diet and, I think and they're we, applying let, it to an epidemiology study where they're saying, oh, this person eats meat five days a week. Well, what else do they eat? So the problem with those studies Joe, is they're so flawed. I'm, if you, I'm if not, you're making I, someone fill out a form. You're that, having an argument with somebody besides me, somebody you've had an argument with in the past, because I'm not saying that you're, you're overreacting to things that I'm saying based on some other discussions you've had in the past. I don't think I'm overreacting. But you also understand that most plants are inedible. Most plants are inedible, true. Yeah, and most animals are edible. But they also think that one of the reasons why we became human beings was because of hunting. Cooking meat and hunting and that, having more access to protein sources. You understand there's an equally uh, theory that, that probably when we became root eaters is when we really got brain I've never expansion. read that theater no, that not. theory rather when we became root eaters that's when, when our brains grew we started eating tubers yeah mm -hmm. how come rabbits aren't gigantic brains and so as i was just listening back to that i forgot that that little gem is in there too rogan almost like it's a gotcha says well then why don't rabbits have gigantic brains <laughs> and obviously you could turn that right back around and say why don't hyenas or lions you know why can't they perform uh brain surgery or split atoms you know <laughs> um yeah but there there are those contending theories and i've heard that for a long time that perhaps one of our hominid ancestors i think it's often proposed it could be uh, australopithecus um, they may have began by scavenging the kills of predators and eating meat and then brain growth or development was further accelerated when we learned how to cook meat. Um, so yeah, that's one theory. And there is a contending theory that uh, it might sound a little crazy when you first hear it, that perhaps it was tubers and uh, 
root vegetables, things with starches in them that actually accelerated brain growth. I honestly have no idea which is true, but that was uh, a ridiculous gotcha attempt by Joe Rogan there. And my apologies for the shoddy editing, because as I said, you know, I basically took the hench herbivore clip and tried to cut out all of his responses and stitched the Joe Rogan bits back together. So at one point, the word fact gets cut off. A couple of times, you can still hear hench herbivore jump in. So my apologies for the editing. And there was another part that, to be honest, didn't really seem as bad upon listening to it back. But I remember originally or initially kind of wincing at that moment where the guy offers Joe Rogan this vegan cheese. And without missing a beat, Joe is like, yeah, that's going to friends. Well, at least he was being honest, I guess. And, uh... Uh, yeah, so I think in general, without the accompanying video, uh, you don't really get, you know, the full tension in the air doesn't come across until about maybe the halfway point or so where you can really hear Rogan kind of becoming more noticeably petulant. And so it seems what really triggered Joe is this claim that a plant-based whole foods diet is the only diet proven to reverse heart disease. And I think I first heard that claim in the movie The Game Changers, and then I've heard it echoed a lot by various vegan YouTubers. I honestly have no idea whether or not it's true. I think the claim can be traced back to vegan medical doctor Caldwell Esselstyn, and I believe he has a son, Rip Esselstyn, who also promotes a whole foods plant-based diet. On YouTube, at least, the online vegan community seems a bit divided. There's been a couple of young vegan medical doctors. I believe one of them is named Dr. Avi, or that's what he goes by. He has his own YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, despite themselves being vegan, uh, they've basically said, and I'm really paraphrasing here, that in good conscience, they can't back up the claim that a whole foods plant-based diet, drink every time I say that, <laughs> unless you're driving, has been proven to reverse heart disease. And that when you look at the data, you know, cautiously and conservatively, there just doesn't seem to be enough evidence. And me, I have no idea. I'm a podcaster with a graphic design degree who works manual labor by day. You know, what do I know? But vegan isn't just a synonym for plant-based. You know, it's supposed to be an ethical way of life. And if you're doing it for the animals, it shouldn't matter at the end of the day whether it reverses heart disease or not. Be awesome if it did. Uh, heart disease is one of the biggest killers out there. But once again, you know, I don't have a medical degree. I don't know how to interpret the data. So, you know... What do I know once again? I think it's safe to say, though, that if you're worried about cholesterol and heart disease, uh, high cholesterol and heart issues run in my own family, it can't hurt to go plant-based or to start at least reducing your consumption of animal products. And then Joe Rogan proceeds to say one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. An another gem, kind of like, why don't rabbits have big brains? This one might be worse, though. He says to John Mackey, like it's a gotcha, you do know that most plants are inedible, right? And I recognize that talking point immediately. Recently, Joe had this guy named Paul Saladino on his show. And it's not my joke, but someone else noted that. It's a guy who hates plants, and ironically, his last name starts with the word salad. And I had known about Paul Saladino previously just from watching vegan versus carnivore content on YouTube. 
And I was a little surprised Joe had him on because I saw him as this kind of out there fringe figure. In fairness, I think he may actually have some nutritionist training, but I believe as far as his medical credentials go, he's actually a psychiatrist, which is kind of scary. I guess he actually used to be a raw vegan, but now he's one of these carnivore diet guys. And I know this isn't nice and it's ad homs and not evidence, but the guy creeps the shit out of me. He's one of those guys that almost seems too nice, constantly smiling, but in an almost psychotic kind of way, like he's hiding something. Like you might go out to eat with him and later wake up naked in his basement with a pair of antlers grafted onto your head. That was oddly specific. But that thing about most plants being inedible is one of his talking points. And I think he actually used it on Joe's show. And of course, Joe then parrots it when talking to John Mackey. And before I go any further, let's get this out of the way. Who cares what percentage of plants are inedible? The edible ones are duh, edible. Should people stop eating fruits and vegetables because certain plants aren't edible? Should we start feeding horses steaks so they don't get hay poisoning? It's ludicrous. And like a lot of things that get, you know, twisted and blown out of proportion, there is a grain, no pun intended, of truth there. Some foods that we consider healthy can have negligible amounts of naturally occurring carcinogens and that kind of thing. I remember years back, I got a little concerned when I heard that a certain artificial sweetener, aspartame specifically, I think, used in diet drinks, supposedly contains something that can convert to formaldehyde when exposed to certain temperatures. And so, yeah, I just looked it up, and apparently at about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, the wood alcohol, aka methanol and aspartame, does convert to formaldehyde. And then the formaldehyde is broken down into formic acid. But I remember how that led me to read how very negligible amounts of things like methanol and formaldehyde occur naturally in things like bananas and tomatoes, but supposedly the amounts are so small it's not even a concern, and it certainly doesn't merit giving up eating those foods and the health benefits they provide. And formaldehyde has this kind of scary reputation because it brings to mind embalming fluid in funeral homes, etc., but our bodies actually naturally produce formaldehyde, and supposedly it takes an obscene amount of it before you have to worry about a toxic buildup of formic acid. And so looking at it from a kind of evolutionary or Darwinian perspective, my take is, you know, nature isn't perfect. I hate saying quote-unquote concern because it sounds like I'm ascribing agency, but for lack of a more apt way of putting it, in a sense, the primary concern of natural selection is keeping an organism alive only long enough to reproduce. It makes sense that foods might naturally contain small amounts of things that aren't good for us or carcinogens or whatever. Nature's brutal. Beautiful and wondrous, but also brutal. But it seems like people like Saladino and now Rogan are trying to use this kind of thing to suggest that plants are bad for us and we should turn to eating meat instead. So plants might contain some minuscule, negligible amounts of scary, naturally occurring chemicals. And meat and other animal products have crap like heme iron, cholesterol, and saturated fat. And also, I should add that I believe formaldehyde and other scary-sounding chemicals are naturally occurring in meat as well, everything from crustaceans to beef. But I did some reading on this whole thing regarding the majority of plants being inedible. 
The number varies depending on the source, but seems the consensus is that there's nearly 400,000 known plant species, and according to some sources, only about 20-something percent of those are edible. But if I understand correctly, what also needs to be factored in is that a plant that might be inedible to us might be quite edible to another species, or vice versa, and there's some species of plant that may be considered inedible simply because they're unappealing to our palate or difficult to chew, but technically they're still safe to eat. And there's other plants that are edible during certain points of their life cycle, but not others. But to come full circle, and I may have wasted a lot of time getting back to this simple point, who cares what percentage of plants are inedible when the edible ones are, you guessed it, edible. And like I mentioned last week, I know the majority of people eat meat, and I'm not trying to alienate or guilt or judge anyone. I myself am still in the process of phasing out animal products. But Rogan kind of got under my skin with his behavior during that exchange, and I guess I felt the need to vent. Oh, and a final note on this topic. The irony of Mackie supposedly being vegan and yet selling meat wasn't lost on me. Others have pointed that out too. So does he consider himself to be vegan, at least in part, for ethical reasons? Or does he merely see himself as embracing a plant-based diet for the health benefits? I don't know. And to be honest, it seems like, I was trying to go by context clues, that they may have touched on that, and maybe it got cut out of that clip. Uh, I'm not sure. But on to the next topic. I like that cosmic skeptic chap, so I'm going to cover another one of his clips. And similar to last week's clip where he's interviewing Dawkins, and like that Rogan clip I just played, I may just play the clip in its entirety and then comment, it's about four or five minutes long, so hopefully you don't forget which podcast you're listening to by the time I jump back in. I always feel a little awkward after playing a long clip. It's like, hey, remember me? But this time, Cosmic Skeptic's guest is Justin Brierly from Unbelievable. And I've played clips from Unbelievable on the show here and there over the years. I believe technically Unbelievable is both a radio show and a podcast, and I think it airs on Premier Christian Radio. My feelings on Justin Brierly are kind of mixed. To his credit, I think he hosts some great conversations. And I don't know if he finds and books the guests himself or if someone else does it. But they do a really good job of finding opposing minds to come on the show. A lot of big-name philosophers and scientists, both atheist and Christian, will come on and kind of intellectually slug it out. And yet, commendably, there is still uh, usually an air of civility, a cordiality to the whole thing. My only criticism of Briarly might be that although he does a fairly good job of maintaining an air of objectivity, sometimes his Christian bias does kind of seep in. But I believe, as I already alluded, this isn't a clip from Unbelievable. This is actually Briarly as a guest on Cosmic Skeptic Show, and they discuss something that's long captured my imagination going all the way back to when I was still a believer as a child, and it's the concept of man supposedly being made in the image of God. And the twist here is, how do you reconcile this notion that we're supposedly made in the image of God within the context of human evolution? That's kind of the question that Cosmic Skeptic puts to Briarly. Because Briarly, to his credit, isn't some young Earth creationist. He's sensible enough that he embraces mainstream science, including evolution. But here's the clip. I presume that you're somebody who generally accepts the scientific literature on evolution. Yeah, I mean, with some caveats, but I'm, I'm yeah. very happy to say 
if if that's the best explanation going, uh-huh. then that's the best explanation. Right, and that's going. a good way of looking okay. at it. So, but my question would be something like, if if human value is predicated on the idea that human beings are made in the image of God and that they are are special, they they mm. have some kind of mm. special worth, then if you trace the evolutionary uh, heritage of human beings. Mm you get back to a kind of apish ancestor mm. which doesn't resemble humans and mm. clearly wasn't made in the image of God. So I struggle to get my head around the idea that we can have a kind of a, a fish and mm. then billions mm. of years of evolution mm. and at some point along that chain, okay, around about here, this is where we're now in the image of God. Mm. It seems like if you're made in the image of God, there needs to be this this immediate creation of humanity as it exists because otherwise you run into a problem of, of uh, degree. Yeah. It, yeah, and and this is an area where I wouldn't claim to have massive expertise, but I'd say. But so, I mean, the, like the question would be something like, uh, wh- where like a, a, chim- yeah. a chimpanzee is, yeah. our, is our closest yeah. ancestor, um, are they sort of close enough to the image of God to have some mm. semblance of that that moral dignity? Well, I would say for anything that is non-human, um, that is a different species or whatever, the way we treat that species, that animal, um, we need to do that as a reflection of our God-given image, if you like. And, okay. and, and so it's incumbent upon us to, to treat things in ways that reflect the compassion and, and everything else yeah. that God has, has built in us. So I wouldn't say that the belief in, in the intrinsic uniqueness, if you like, if humanity means we can just do what we like with the rest of creation. It's, no. It's, it's that, but, but coming to your point about when did this, you know, yeah, like when, this when image does God get, start caring? Gets, gets sort of uh, put into humanity. I don't know, um, is, is the honest truth. Um, uh, it could be, you know, I'm speculating here, that there was a moment at which God endowed um, a primitive pair with conscience and a kind of uh, an awareness of him and uh, morality and everything else. That could be one way. It could have been some kind of slow process in which that accumulated into a group or whatever. Um, I don't know. All I All I do know, in a sense, is that we do believe we're special. We do believe there's something special about humanity mm-hmm. and that we, and, and I believe that is best grounded in the idea that we are made in the image of God. How exactly that came to be is open to speculation. And we have a story in the Bible, obviously, in Genesis, which I think is a great analogy, a great piece of poetic literature that tells us we're created for a purpose and to reflect God's image. Mm. But it's not giving us a scientific account yeah that. and and that would be that's and i've done debates on when that happens what it I, i'm kind of somewhat agnostic if i'm honest on that i don't know and i don't think i may ever claim to know yeah because i mean christianity seems to quite clearly draw a distinction between human beings and other animals and and very much press their their specialty and that's mm. what we do with something like human rights as well we say that humans are of their own kind um and yet I mean, Peter Singer makes an interesting point on this, which is that whereas we would lump oysters and chimpanzees in this this category of animals, mm. we we have a complete divide between chimpanzees and us, even though we are far closer to a chimpanzee mm. than an oyster is. Mm. And I mean, can you see the can you see the problem with saying that the the morality that we have is grounded in the fact that we are made in the image of God, and yet if you go back not that long ago in terms of evolutionary history, maybe two hundred thousand years or so. There are, there are different species of humans. I mean, do, do, do Neanderthals have mm. have the same kind of well, again, image of I'm, God? I'm, 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 I'm kind of agnostic on that. I mean, it could be that God has purposes and, you know, ways in which 
he was in some sense um th th those neanderthals or whatever had some kind of moral sense or whatever i'm not in a position to know mm. um all i do know is what i can tell from my experience now about yeah. humans and the way that we are distinct from the rest of the animal but, I world. I mean, do you see it as a serious challenge, this evolutionary history? I don't really know, because for me, it's all it is, is it, it gets us to the same position. We're humans and we, the majority of us seem to have a belief in this intrinsic value in, of humans, whether we, whatever evolutionary pathway that took, or whether it was a special creation at some point of a first human couple or whatever it was, you know, or if it was a young earth creationist belief, you know, that it was all started mm -hmm. 6,000 years ago. The point is, we're all presented with the same point of view now yeah. that, that and and all i ask atheists to do is to to consider why if if the naturalist account is true and that all of this is actually from a purposeless process um why we have this special um regard and so i think this kind of escaped my notes but upon listening back to that again just now I want to kind of tip my hat to Briarly for mentioning that he thinks other creatures are deserving of respect and compassion. It always seems strange or hypocritical to me when people who otherwise purport to be Christian look on animals with disdain or visit cruelty upon them, or disrespect or despise a group of their fellow human beings because of the color of their skin. When from their worldview, shouldn't they see all life as a part of God's creation? It's as if they're disrespecting the living, breathing work of the God they claim to believe in so fervently. I also appreciate Justin Brierley's humility and intellectual honesty. Well, right up till the end there, that is. It almost sounds like he thinks it's a real gotcha question. But he says he wants atheists to explain, and I'm heavily paraphrasing, why do we hold humans in such high regard if there is no God and everything has a naturalistic explanation? Why do we seem so special or unique or something to that effect? And this is something I've thought about quite a bit on my own long before ever encountering this clip. And I think the answer is rather simple. We think humans are special because we're humans. There's some bias there. I don't know if it's learned or inherent, but it seems like there's a kind of built-in speciesism. Is it evolutionary to some degree? It seems like other animals are also capable of recognizing their own kind and forming social groups, so other species might be naturally biased towards their own kind as well. And then on top of it, you have our big brains, our pronounced self-awareness, and our ability to reflect on and think deeply about things. Well, at least some of us. We can say, hey, look what we can do with our opposable thumbs and big smart noggins. We must be the crown of creation. So rather than God making us in his image, it seems like we've made him and ours. We assume in our arrogance and solipsism that God is an ape. That's if you interpret the made in the image of God thing literally. I've heard biblical scholars and theologians, etc. posit a more figurative interpretation that perhaps um, made in God's image means something more spiritual and shouldn't be taken literally as God has the anthropomorphic body of an evolved ape and made us physically in his image. It might be one of those things where maybe you have to take a look at the original Hebrew to get a better idea of how it should be interpreted. I don't know. And it's interesting. On the one hand, I think it's of course a good thing when religious people are sober-minded and rational enough to accept something like evolution. 
But as Cosmic Skeptic points out, it can also raise certain questions or problems, the extent of which probably depends on how literally you insist on taking certain biblical passages. But I've also pondered that specific example that Cosmic Skeptic brings up. If you're someone who believes in both Christianity and evolution, and you accept the doctrine that we're supposedly made in God's image, at what point during the evolutionary process does that kick in? Or at what specific point did we supposedly go from being just another animal to the crown of God's creation made in his own image? What about hominid ancestors like Australopithecines or close cousins like Neanderthals or Neanderthals, tomato, tomato, who apparently were close enough to interbreed with us? Uh, Run-of-the-mill genetic testing can now actually tell you if you have Neanderthal or Neanderthal. Thal DNA. And obviously, this is just kind of a fun thought exercise, for me at least. I don't believe in any religious doctrines or supernatural faith claims that I need to square or harmonize with evolution. And I think way back in the early days of the show, I used to talk about how I don't think that belief in God or a higher power and belief in evolution are necessarily mutually exclusive. Quite the contrary, I think there can be an almost kind of poetic beauty to thinking of evolution as the kind of unfurling or process by which a god or higher power achieves its creation. But then when you really stop and think about it, there's all the nightmarish eons of creatures rending and devouring one another, suffering and dying only to go extinct. Uh, then, you know, it doesn't seem quite as poetic when you factor all that in. Um, then, you know, also theodicy rears its ugly but familiar head. Uh, but on that cherry note, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. Thanks for listening. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm hardly ever on there. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe doing that now. If you would like to help the show out monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout. It helps support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. <laughs>